My name is Justin McGinn, and uh, it is such a wonderful privilege to be able to be with you this morning and open up God's Word together. For those of you that do not know me, uh, my wife, Carly, and I, our two boys, Luke and Ephraim, we are part of uh, a network called Acts 29. This network focuses on global church planting as well as national initiatives here in America. And uh, we have been able to journey with you, Cross Point Church, in a partnership for the last six years as my family and I have been in Italy planting a church, and um, the last year we've been in a transition like much of us in this room, and now we are moving into a different missional context at the first of next year. We'll be moving into the UK to continue training and equipping and church planting. And so it is such an honor to be here with you and to feel the love and the prayers and the support, as well as being able to share this moment with you this morning in August. I want us to pray, but before we pray, I want us to read uh, our scripture passage this morning, okay? Let's turn to the scriptures. Isaiah, the book of Isaiah, chapter 61. Today we're looking at two verses. They seem quite brief, but they are deep. Isaiah 61, verses 10 and 11. Isaiah 61, 10 and 11. The prophet of God speaks, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. Verse 11, for as the earth brings forth its sprouts, And as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all of the nations. Let's pray. Holy Father, we come to you now and we ask that you strip away any sense of pride, any obstacle of indignation and complacency and sin that does not allow us to see the glory of your gospel in your word this morning. We ask you, Lord Jesus, that you come, that I am set aside and that you speak on behalf of your spirit and that you speak and you convict us this morning, that you encourage and you build us up this morning, that we as the bride may respond to the word given and live out the application and the implication of what these verses mean. That these verses do not just stay in our minds, but that they stay in the, in the subtleties of our hearts and, and move out into action this week and that we can live out what this text is saying. We pray that you be the joy of our hearts and make that a reality for us. Make that a reality for Cross Point Church. We pray this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. How many of you have seen the movie Everest, or heard of it at least? Came out about five or six years ago. I still haven't watched all of it, too depressing. Uh, By the title of the film, we know ultimately what happens, right? Not many people survive the plot. The movie, though, was based on a true story of a couple of teams trying to make the ascent of Everest in the mid-90s, and if I'm not mistaken, only one or two of them survived and came back home. But the challenge of Everest hasn't been something that has just been experienced over the last couple of decades. For the last hundred years, we as a people have been interested, curious, and trying to climb its peak. 
There was a famed mountain climber 100 years ago by the name of George Mallory. I think we have a picture of him with us this morning. George Mallory was one of the best mountain climbers that ever existed. And in the 1920s, he made several attempts to try to reach the summit of Mount Everest. In 1924, he was killed on his third attempt. 75 years later, in 1999, he was found. His body was found 27,000 feet up, just 2,000 feet from the peak. Give up, he did not. His body was found face down on a rocky slope. His head was pitched towards the summit. His arms and his hands were extended high over his head. His toes were pointed into the side of the mountain, refusing to let go even as he drew his final breath. A couple of years prior to his death in 1922, Mallory was interviewed by a reporter as to why he would even try to attempt this climb. Why would you, why would you climb something this risky where you could die, George? And this was the response that George gave the reporter. What is the purpose of climbing Mount Everest? And my answer must be at once, there is none. There is not the slightest prospect of any gain whatsoever. You see, we will not bring back a single bit of gold or silver or any gems or coal or iron. There is no use to why we go. And then he continues to the reporter. So if you cannot understand that there is something in man which responds to the challenge of this mountain and goes out to meet it, that the struggle is the struggle of life itself, upward and forever upward, you will not see why we go. What we get from this adventure is just sheer joy. And joy is, after all, the end of life. Mallory concluded saying this, we do not live to eat and make money as humans. We eat and we make money to be able to enjoy the joy of life. That is what life means and that is what life is for. Now I would argue this morning, this August morning, 2021, we like George find ourselves, the pandemic fading in the background, looking upward looking forward, fingers dug in. Our feet are pitched into the challenge of every single one of our Everests. Just look around us. Houses are being built, bought, sold. Stocks are going higher. The airlines are selling the means to your next vacation. Cars are being traded in and bought for bigger, newer ones. Everyone is headed up. Everyone is headed up. Even those of us who have not so deep pockets are trying to, to make our way up the ascent. Those who have deeper pockets, they can't spend money on earth. They try to spend money in space. What have we been watching for the last month? Sir Richard Branson, Jeff Bezos, don't know what I'm gonna spend my money on on earth. So what brings me joy beyond earth? Elon Musk looking for Mars. But why? Why do we, like those men, why do we try to climb Everest, our Everest? Why do we do it? 
I would contend this morning, church family, that we do it in order to have sheer joy. Because the biggest need that we face as humans is not to live life in order to have the best food or the most money or the nicest house or the perfect family or the the most gratifying job. No, we pitch ourselves on the mountain of these things for namely the joy that we get from them. The prophet Isaiah is speaking to us in the same way that George Mallory does. He speaks about our need for joy. Look back at the text with me, verse 10. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God. Verse in English seems pretty basic, but in the Hebrew, it is really, really emphatic. In the Hebrew, it sounds like this. Rejoicing, I will rejoice. Why? Why all of this excitement? Why is the prophet excited? He shouldn't be. Because if you looked at his people's situation at that time, there was no reason for them to be excited or to have joy. You see, the people of Israel, as he's writing these words, are facing utter destruction. For years and for generations, they had been turning away from Yahweh God, the Redeemer. They had been looking for idols. They had been searching for joy in other things. And as he's writing these words, tens of thousands of Babylonians are coming soon to destroy Jerusalem, to destroy their beloved temple. Their lands are about to be taken. And somehow, Isaiah, speaking in the Holy Spirit on behalf of himself and the people of God, finishes his thought of chapter 61 with grounds for rejoicing. What about us this morning? Maybe there are those of us here living in the same reality that Israel lived in. That we know about God, that he's somehow out there, but we keep him at an arm's reach. And then daily we chase joy in everything other than him. What do we do when we're worried, when we're anxious? Where do our minds go daily when we're fearful and we're depressed? What do we do to get the joy that we so much long for? Isaiah, despite the fact that hardly anybody in his nation or his people were listening to what he was saying, he can sit there and still have reason to rejoice in God. Church, I think the reason why he can rejoice, he can sit there in the midst of pain and destruction and death and sit there and dance for joy is because his eyes were not fixed on his situation. His eyes were fixed on the person who was going to fix it, his Redeemer, Yahweh, God. Now we know the story, right? We know Israel's history. We know what God had done for them. And for generations, he had made covenant with them. He had walked with them. He had established his law with them. And yet time goes by, time moves forward, and they lose sight of the Redeemer. They lose their joy in their Redeemer. They sought joy in other things perhaps in their ethnic and cultural uniqueness, in the cultural rights of the temple and what that meant for them as an ethnic people. Archaeology tells us that they sought their identity and their joy in the, the gods 
and the religions of their neighboring nations during this time. They had lost their joy in Yahweh, the one who had redeemed them. But church, do you remember what Mallory said to that reporter? Do you remember his response to why he climbed that mountain? He said, what we get from this adventure is just sheer joy, and joy is, after all, the end of life. I see a connection here. I see a connection. The problem that Israel had, and the same problem that George Mallory speaks to us, that speaks into, is our reality that we struggle with every single day. I do. We pursue joy as if it's the end of life. If you don't believe me, just pull out your phone. Pull up the tabs from your internet browser. Pull up your Amazon membership. Pull up your credit card history. That's all we have to do. Define what brings us joy. We, like Mallory, so often, we're so focused on the joy of it that nothing else matters as long as we strive in the climb, as long as we are content with the ascent. And if someone doesn't agree with me this morning, just ask yourself, how did you respond when 2020 put your ascent to joy on hold? How do we respond? Some of us more than others, we don't really care about the summit, we just want the adventure of the ascent. Others of us may be even tempted to use Christianity as a means to bring us joy and not Jesus. What brings us joy is that we're this type of Christian, not that type. We have this type of theology, not that type. This is our doctrine and our dogma. This is our identity, not them. Maybe some of us are tempted to use Christianity, religion, to bring us joy. But if I can be honest... We, like Israel, desire joy, but not always in God, church. Not always in God. We pursue it. We take up hobbies. This is why we do it. We get jobs. We build careers. We get the greatest education, not for themselves as an end, but for the joy that we can get from them. And the problem with this way of thinking is that we do all of this and we strive so hard and we invest so much money and so much time. We, we fill up our Google calendars for it, for perhaps a joy that doesn't last. George Mallory's joy didn't last. How many of you are C.S. Lewis fans? I don't know why I'm asking that. This is Jamie. Jamie Vizzini is a pastor here. Um. I am one of those fans. In his book, The Weight of Glory, C.S. Lewis speaks to the problem that we face as humans. He speaks to this idea that we are so focused on things that cannot ultimately satisfy us. And Lewis writes in his book, The Weight of Glory, he says, we are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because, we, because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. And you, you can fill in the blank with drink and sex and ambition. You can put whatever you want on that. 
But if I can just break down what Lewis is saying, Lewis is speaking to our inability to live our lives for an infinite joy in God because of our ignorance and being satisfied in looking for and finding a joy that doesn't last. We strive like George. We strive like George. We strive looking for the next point, the next best thing. He did the same on that mountain, looking up to the next point in his ascent. Maybe the summit doesn't really mean all that much, but that we have joy in our journey. We all find ourselves, church, this morning in that ascent. We look up. We look up for the next job promotion. We look up for the next house, for perhaps the next child, or even the next Netflix series. We're looking up. We're looking up. Now, don't think that this only applies for those of us here who have a good ways to go up the mountain. There may be some of us who have actually scaled the majority of the mountain. And do you know what you're doing? Perhaps you're looking for joy in the past adventure of your ascent. Maybe the most joy in your life was when you were young, when you had children, when you had that good job that gave you stability. We reminisce. We think back, listen to the music from then, eat the food from back then, read the books from back then. Some of us may be ascending the mountain, but instead of looking forward, we're looking backward as we climb. But the point to all of this, Crosspoint family, is that the joy that this life offers will not last. But there is a joy that we can have this morning, and it is a joy that doesn't end. It doesn't end. It is free and it is infinite. Now, I know for those of us Americans who work for our joy, the sound of a free, infinite joy sounds crazy, doesn't it? We invest for the joy we have. We put in the time. We sacrifice. We sweat for the joy that we experience. The sound that somehow a joy can be unimmeasurable, infinite, that it can be free just like that? No. I can't believe it's free. I can't believe it's just there to take. Well, you're right. It wasn't free. It cost a lot. It cost more than we could ever imagine. And I want to tell you why the infinite joy we have in Jesus Christ wasn't free. The scriptures tell us that joy to the world was born in Bethlehem. The gospels tell us that he went to the cross and he died to purchase the joy that the angels had announced. There was a struggle on that mountain. There was a storm on that summit, but it wasn't snow and it wasn't frostbite and it wasn't malnutrition. It was the wrath of God. It was the shame of men. It was asphyxiation on a cross. This infinite joy that you and I can have in Jesus was not free. But look at what it accomplished for you and me. Verse 10. For he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. 
He has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. The prophet Isaiah here is speaking in the spirit to what Christ would accomplish when he gave humanity this gift. Look back at the imagery with me. Garments of salvation, robes of righteousness, This is Isaiah's way of saying, using imagery, that the salvation that you and I receive in Jesus Christ is like when a beggar is dressed and invited in to a hot meal. Or when a robe of honor is put on a people who have no honor, us, who only have shame. The prophet goes further with images of a bride and groom putting on their attire just before they come together in covenant. Images that convey just deep intimacy. Intimacy at its deepest level between Christ and his people. What the prophet's saying is that this joy that Isaiah speaks of is not a joy you and I can lose. It's not a joy like the cheap trick that we're so often offered. If we just invest this much, if we just pay this much, if we just lose this much weight, it's not that. It's not that type of a joy. It's so much more, so much more. And those of you who have experienced this joy in Jesus, understand with me, it's so hard at times to describe the weight of that joy. But I wanna try to do it for us this morning. Charles Wesley wrote a hymn called, And Can It Be That I Should Gain? One of the great classics. We sing it often, but like me, we don't, necessarily think of the implications of those words. And so I want to read a couple of stanzas for you today. I want to try to describe the joy that Christ purchased for you and me. Stanza three. He left his father's throne above, so free, so infinite his grace, emptied himself of all but love and bled for Adam's helpless race. Tis mercy all, immense and free, for oh my God, it found out me. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin in nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. No condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine. Alive in him my living head and clothed in righteousness divine. Bold, I approach the eternal throne and I claim the crown through Christ, my own. Crosspoint family, we pursue joy like George Mallory that we can never keep. When Christ, when Jesus purchased it at a cost unimaginable and gave it to us as a gift. This is the meaning and the purpose of the gospel that what is good and desirable about your life need never be lost. And what is evil and undesirable about your life is being changed right now by the power of God. The fear that the few good things that you have that bring you joy are slipping away from you or the frustrations about your situation can't be changed Those fears and those frustrations are what the advent of joy, namely Jesus Christ, came to destroy. I want to try to give you an example 
that may bring this concept closer to home. How many of us are parents here? By speaking about this, I think that it's something that's relatable to those of you who aren't parents, who can't be parents, um, because you've had parents and you can understand this analogy. Why? Why do we struggle and sacrifice as parents? Why do we want to raise children? Why do we put the time and the money and the investment? Why do we go those years with not so many dates with our spouse, not so many great nights of sleep, the diapers, the college tuition, the rebelliousness? Why? Why do we do it? I'm only speaking for Carly and I, but we have children as a family, by God's grace, because of the joy we will have when one day their hearts are awakened by Christ into an infinite joy and their lives are consumed by his kingdom as King Jesus takes dominion over his creation. That's why we do it. That with their heart and their mind, they love God and neighbor so much so that eclipses their love for their country or a political party or a football team or the college they attend. That's why we do it. We do it for the joy that awaits us. That's why we take the risk. That's why we make the sacrifice as parents. Why did Jesus do it? Why did Jesus take that risk? Why did Jesus, as the gospel say, become one like us? The writer of the Hebrews tells us, Hebrews chapter 12, verses one and two. Therefore, we know this verse well, but we may have not have seen it in this aspect. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Look with me, church. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. You may ask, why did he climb that summit? The scriptures say he climbed it for joy. Not something temporary, not something momentarily, but to embrace and grasp and purchase joy, eternal joy for you and for me. And I think that the joy that Christ had on that mountain was that the nations would be able to rejoice as the prophet Isaiah is rejoicing in verse 10. I think that's what he had in mind. And we see a picture of this in verse 11. Look back with me in Isaiah 61, 11. For as the earth brings forth its sprouts and as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before the nations. That's what Christ had in mind. Not joy for just Isaiah, not joy for just you and me, but joy for the world. How will this happen? How does this take place? 
how does God's garden grow? Church, the way in which joy, infinite, eternal joy, moves out to the nations and the nations are exposed to it is through the joy of the bride, namely, you and me. That's how the nations get that joy, through you and through me. So the question this morning, what does that mean? What does that mean for Cross Point Church, August 1st, 2021? What does that mean for us this morning? It means that we spend the rest of this year with people we may not get along with, with people we may not see eye to eye with politically, with people that we just may not like, so that we can share our eternal joy in Jesus with them. It means that we table, perhaps, the joy that we get in the political debate of this nation. We just table that for a season, and instead we spend all that time and energy in sharing Jesus with our neighborhoods and our subdivisions and our neighbors so that they see that the joy we have is in Jesus Christ, not just in the things we have, not just in the money we have. It means that we as a church, when we come together on Sunday, we aren't just satisfied to say, when we're here on Sunday, corporately, we have joy in Jesus, and then we take our fill the other six days a week of a meager limited joy that goes away like a vapor, the same joy that everyone else in this world is chasing. It doesn't mean that. It means that we move beyond that as a church. Will you share your infinite joy of Jesus with others around you? Thinking back about this analogy of a garden that the prophet uses, From a geographical perspective, my family and your family, we may find ourselves on opposite sides of the garden, and that's okay. The task remains the same, sharing the gift of our eternal joy with those around us. Because Cross Point family, the point of this text in Isaiah is is not just our theme song. It is the theme song of the redeemed from every age. Praise and righteousness sprouting up. How many of you are gardeners here? Gardeners, anybody? Couple? My father-in-law and my father are both gardeners, and uh, it's really comical to watch the challenge of them trying to plant something new or something unique or something difficult, almost impossible to grow. And um, as a Christmas present, my sons, they gave my father... Uh, vegetable seeds from Italy. He'd been asking for them for some time, and when he goes to Italy, everything grows in, in his garden. It doesn't grow. and So we, we brought seeds back from Italy, and he, he loves Roma tomatoes. And so we brought these seeds back, and he took the seeds, and he invested the time and the effort and the, the rain. And, the, and um, he gave the seeds out to other people as well before he planted his own. And it was just funny to see how wasn't funny, but it was funny for me to see how everyone that he gave the seeds to, their Roma tomatoes were just beautiful, and his were not. And so for the last month, he's been going around collecting the Roma tomatoes from the friends he gave the seeds to because his garden didn't turn out. Thank God, God's garden is not like my dad's. Thank God we have certainty here about what's going to happen. 
Look with me. Verse 11. So the Lord will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before the nations. The Lord God will cause this. I want to give you an example because so many times, so, so often, I myself, we're so distracted by the negativity of what the culture tells us is going on in the world. We're not actually focused on what God's actually doing in his kingdom. But I want to give you a taste of what that growth looks like, cross point in God's garden. In 1973, I'm taking all of this from Joshua Project. In 1973, there were around 400 evangelical Christian missionaries to the country of India in 1973. 50 years later, there were more than 40,000 evangelical missionaries, more than 1,000 Bible schools and Bible colleges, and more than 250 mission-sending agencies in the country of India alone. This is what's happening right now. In the country of China, the sprout is much taller. In 1975, amidst the reign of their communist regime, the persecuted church, some estimates had two to three million evangelical Christians in the country of China. Last year, estimates hold that number at going beyond 100 million. You see, what's incredible about this verse is that Praise, the praise that Isaiah is speaking of here in verse 11, it is the natural response of God's grace. This is what we do when we see God's grace in our life. And righteousness is the gift of that grace. Praise and righteousness sprouting up amongst the nations. May we be a people that not just take joy in who we are in Jesus here, but we also recognize what he's doing around the world, how he's raising his kingdom high. As we close, I want to speak to some of us here in this room that perhaps have not really experienced joy often in the life. Looking back on last year, the virus really did a work on a lot of people. Things were exposed, hearts were exposed, fears were exposed, anxieties were exposed. But maybe even before the pandemic, it was already there. Maybe there are some of us in this room that have rarely experienced joy at its fullest. And that's because we may be suffering. There may be sin holding us down. We may have experienced death in a way that we just can't, we can't get away from it. Some of us may be thinking, Justin, that's great. Like, I, I get it, but you don't understand. The times that I've had joy in my life, the times that joy has come into my life, immediately it was snatched up from me. And so we look around. We look, and everyone's happy. Everyone's joyful, but not us. We look with disdain as everyone seems to have it together, and we don't. Maybe we can't get away from the torment of depression or the fear of what the Delta variant may do. We can't get away from it. I want to encourage you 
not with my words, but with Jesus' words this morning. Those of us who find ourselves in, in times of pain and suffering, we have a close friend of ours, co-church planter in Italy, who was planting in Bologna with us. His wife will be passing away in the next 24 hours with brain cancer. Has been home with her two daughters now for the past three days, dehydrated, not eating. They're letting her go. Like John Luca, in that, in that moment, where's his mind going? When your life is consumed with suffering and pain and death, where does your mind and your heart go? If you're experiencing that, or if you, if you will experience that, and we will experience that, church, I want you to hear the words of Jesus to us this morning when he speaks to his disciples in John 16, 22. Christ says this, so also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. Can we just think about that for a moment? Can we think about that? Can we pray on that? You will never lose it. It will never go away.